listening to Potluck, the podcast that stirs up a unique flavor of people, culture, and brands in Asia. Hosted, as always, by Scott and Drago. This is our third and final part of our discussion with Vasuki Shastri. It's time for our quickfire round, Brand Burns. Okay, let's start with flavor of the month. Vasuki, um, we'd love to know what you're reading now, what's on your radar now in terms of uh, new ideas, new thinking, something that's, you know, um, really on your, on, your, on your reading table or on your mind. Yeah, I'm reading a lot of fiction these days. And I think coming out of this book, uh, doing this nonfiction work, I kind of ignored fiction for the last two years. Uh, one book that I'm reading at the moment uh, is really is trying to reconnect uh, with Myanmar is this wonderful book by Amitav Ghosh, uh, which came out in 2007. It's called The Glass Palace. It's a fantastic mm. read, on, on, and it really is uh, heartbreaking to read in the current context of where Myanmar has you know, really slided. Mm. All the promise of democratic reforms uh, evaporated. This book, of course, is set in an earlier era, uh, before World War I, and, and, and goes through 50, 60 years, where we learn about uh, the remarkable history of this country. And of course, it's a work of fiction. I would highly recommend uh, mm. people reading this in order to get the historical context about uh, Myanmar and why why it's such a complicated, fascinating country. Uh, so that's one book. The other book that I read, uh, another work of fiction recently was uh, by Jhumpa Lahiri, a book mm. called Whereabouts, uh, which I would highly recommend. It was written, uh, Jhumpa Lahiri is an Indian-American writer who taught herself mm. Italian. Uh, and, and so this book was originally written in Italian. She translated it into English. It's a <laughs> remarkable act of uh, scholarship, very frightening to think uh, uh, as someone who's brave enough to learn a new language, write a book and translate it back into English. But it's a very, very, you know, uh, uh, when you think of fiction, you essentially think in terms of grand narratives. You think, think in terms of drama. This is a very stripped down version of, of fiction where we don't know who the, uh, 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 the narrator is. We don't know, even though we can guess, uh, where the narrator lives. And, and it is her life in, uh, uh, told in this really stripped down, interesting narrative, which I found uh, as a writer of nonfiction uh, really, really interesting uh, in, in, in how a writer is experimenting uh, with format. I'm also applying through Barack Obama's uh, book, uh, which is a really long read. Uh, I think I've come mm. halfway through reading that. And I'm certainly looking forward to uh, reading lighter works of the summer progresses. Every summer, I tend to read an old book by P.G. Woodhouse, mm. uh, you know, a, a famous English writer from the mm. turn of the century who writes uh, uh parody on a grand scale. And, 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 you know, as someone who lived in London, I now certainly appreciate and get uh, Woodhouse's humor uh, that I perhaps did not appreciate when, when, when I was not living in the country. So it's a wonderful takedown of English manners and English life from a different era. Indeed. Okay, plenty of, of parody to be found 
in the UK right now. Um, let, let's move on to uh, something not to sound too crass, but we talk about brand bullshit as well, whereby we normally ask people in the world of marketing, Fusuki, about all the marketing and brand-related fallacies and uh, perhaps soft, softly-based theories on marketing practice. But we wanted to maybe tailor the question for you a little and talk about the world of expertise on Asia. You know, you talk a lot about the kind of hype machine around around Asia, especially the developing parts of the region. Um, what do you think is perhaps often over over you know overemphasized or perhaps um, you know wrongly stated about Asia or maybe particular parts of Asia that you you I mean, obviously this goes back to your book, but um, are there any sort of myths you would like to call out or you know narratives you think need to be uh, put in their place? Yeah, I mean, I explain a lot of the myths and the narratives in the book, but you mm. know, one thing that I worry about is when you find geopolitical pundits uh, in Asia and outside who talk very loosely about inevitable conflict between U.S. Mm-hmm. and China, mm-hmm. and 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 they they mention that so casually, without really, I think, understanding the implications. So you know, let's be very clear about two things. There's a lot of talk about decoupling, you know, that that has almost become a mantra where everyone talks that decoupling is inevitable. I think decoupling, if and when it happens, would be an economic disaster for Asia. So the Asia as we know it today is going to be dismantled. If you really have these distinct spheres of influence between the US and China and perhaps other countries decoupling into their own supply chains, you know, that would completely damage the Asian economic model. The second thing is about war. And, and you know, if you do Google search, if you did a Google search 10 years ago on prospect of war in Asia, you probably would come up with a couple of thousand references, mainly focused on the historical past. Right now, uh, everyone is making it inevitable that over a period of a decade, conflict is inevitable. Uh, uh, that, you know, uh, uh, this is really an unstoppable phenomenon. Mm. And I think geopolitical pundits need to pause and talk uh, uh, and to be a little bit more realistic about this. Because again, either decoupling or conflict is going to damage and destroy all the hard-won gains that Asia has achieved since World War II. And I think a common shared uh, commitment should be doing everything possible and necessary to prevent conflict and to make sure that the economic model that has delivered benefits for Asia is uh, remains intact, remains sustainable. It needs to be transformed a little bit mm. uh, uh, in order to deliver social outcomes. But such kind of talk really angers me because uh, uh, you know we really need to reflect on what a war would actually mean to people on the street. It mm. would be devastating. Moving on to the last question here, it's called Fortunate Failure. And um, we'd like to look at your career, if you don't mind, yeah, um, and ask you to look back and um, kind of think of a moment where you made a mistake or experienced a failure, uh, or at least it felt that way at the time, but eventually you realized was uh, a kind of the beginning of something new. It was the foundation of future success or future positive outcome. Yeah, very, very, very early in my career, after I graduated from journalism school, I I thought I would make for a very good advertising copywriter. So I did work for an advertising agency for a while, 
Uh, and, you know, the advertising, even then in India in the 19, late 1970s, was a very glamorous profession. And, and I fashioned myself to think that I would succeed in the advertising marketing world. And I very quickly realized, and I think the people I was, I was working for at the time realized it even earlier, that I was, you know, ill-suited uh, for this world because I focused perhaps too much on, on, on the facts. And I could not <laughs> simply come up with advertising slogans for consumer products. You know, I failed miserably in that. Uh, then I experimented uh, uh, for a little while. I'm deeply interested in cinema. I still am. Uh, uh, absolutely a passion of mine. I fashioned myself to think maybe I can get into the movie industry as, as perhaps a scriptwriter, as a director in training. And I did you know, take a crack at that. I worked for a very interesting uh, uh, Indian director, uh, who really straddled both the commercial as well as the artistic worlds, uh, worked as a gopher in a movie. And then I realized uh, I was ill-suited for that as well. And I came back to my original love, which is journalism. So I, I realized that I was I was putting my passion for journalism aside in, in chasing after these two completely false, uh, at least for me, professions and and things really uh, got themselves right uh, when i plunged into journalism i was not a business and financial uh, person at the start of that process but i was fortunate in learning learning on the job and becoming an economic and financial journalist which really in many ways uh, helped in building uh, the career that i have today fantastic oh, fan fantastic stories thank you very much just to finish on, on something of a, of a tangent, Vasuki, um, so actually as, as part of our podcast, we're about to embark on a, on a mini-series, if you like, where we're doing some episodes around food. Uh, and food not because we're planning to review restaurants and start uh, sharing our own recipes, but more because we realise food is such a core theme to look at how it intersects with you know trends linked to culture, technology, especially here in Asia. Um, and we're just curious, maybe a hard question to ask you on the spot, but is there any particular themes you would imagine would be interesting when it comes to food in the region, perhaps symbolic of you know wider tensions or or uh, or a conflict that may be at play? Um, is there anything you you think would be the makings of a of a good episode in relation to to foods um, food in Asia? Yeah, you know, I think uh, uh, there's this nationalistic perceptions about food. Uh, that, you know, everyone, for example, in India, you know, particularly in northern India, uh, they assume that the cuisine that people consume is completely homegrown. And we know for the fact that in Indian cuisine has been shaped by Persian cuisine to a great extent, by Arabic cuisine, the fact that India has been uh, this uh, uh, melting pot of cultures in, in, in uh, ancient India, at least that provided the foundation not only for the country, but for its cuisine. Similarly, if you look at Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia is a remarkable blend of Chinese, Indian, and, and homegrown cuisines. And I think if only we allowed the food uh, uh, to talk, I think we'd have a much more unified region where people would think less. And I think the problem with uh, uh, food anywhere, anywhere not, this is not an Asian phenomenon, is people think think in terms of food silos, 
And and one way I have found uh, you can break these silos uh, when you when you introduce the concept of where food comes from, how do these cuisines develop, and that really helps in changing uh, people's minds. So I think you're on the right path. Maybe you can use food as a transformation tool. Yeah, the ambition perhaps wasn't that wasn't that lofty. Maybe we need to uh, set our <laughs> sights higher, Drago. Yeah, I think we should. But I think we've taken we've taken enough of your time already. Um, thank you so much for coming to stir the pot with us. Um, I hope uh, you're feeling well fed and nourished. We certainly do. Thank you, Vasuki. It's a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Drago. Thank you, Scott. And I hope to see you in person uh, when I show up in Singapore, whenever this pandemic is over. Yeah, sure. Please, Thank please. You. We're looking forward to that. Please do. So, yeah, to our listeners, don't forget to click subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Uh, keep those reviews coming. And of course, please do check out Vasuki's fascinating book, Has Asia Lost It? So, in the meantime, keep, keep it, it brewing. brewing.